you're a nurse, an advanced practice nurse, actually, and a scholar, a gentleman and a scholar. Um, but when you were little, what did you think you were going to be? I didn't know what nurses did. Uh, so I I grew up watching uh, ER and MASH, and so I wanted to be a physician because I, I thought that's how MASH. you could best help people. Yes. And then I started working at the hospital as a nurse's aide, the hospital that shall remain nameless. Um, <laughs> and I realized that uh, and there is a role for physicians. There's definitely a role for physicians. Um, but I realized that the human connection, that the, there is a person who is, who has an illness. There is a person who is suffering. There is a person who, you know, wants to be healthy. And it is the nurse who focuses on the person and not the disease. And so I thought that was really kind of in line with what I was most interested in wanting to do. Yeah, I think you chose the right path there. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. Lauren. You're a world famous podcaster, but when you were little, what did you think you were going to be? Ooh, well, next to princess. <laughs> wow, you had high hopes. Okay, so my dad, you know, when I was a kid, I mean, he would just tell us stories and we would kind of believe them. So, yes, I one of them was that I, when I was very young, thought I was a princess. But um, outside of that, you know, I thought that I would want to be um, a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. Oh, a princess mm-hmm. veterinarian. I Makes can sense. see it. Actually, yeah, that's totally a Hallmark Christmas movie, isn't it? Might be. <gasps> the princess uh, <Jocelyn>. veterinarian. <laughs> We have to find I, folks to adopt all these dogs before Christmas or they're going to be uh, euthanized. Yeah, a, <laughs> the prince and I will figure it out. Then we'll get married in, on Christmas Day. Not that I and thought about that. you switch places with a commoner just so that you can experience what that might be oh, like. Oh, that'd be oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. And when you're a commoner, pretending to be a commoner, you fall in love with a chef of a struggling restaurant that also needs to get a big loan before Christmas or he'll lose his job. The restaurant's going to go under. Yeah. The restaurant's going to go under and it's like the only place that all these really sweet old people go to eat. This is a great story. Jocelyn, if this whole world famous podcast thing doesn't work out for you, I think you can go to work at Hallmark. Oh, man. So, current current dreams in my life. Um... Become a rich and famous podcaster, number one. Number two, write Hallmark holiday movies. Oh, yeah. Just full stop. That's all yeah. I do with my life. And I'm talking all holidays. I will do your Valentine's movies. I will do your Fourth oh, wow. of July movies. I will do your Halloween movies. I will do them all. Number four. Are we on four? Mm-hmm. I want to write for the CW, mm-hmm. but I want to write okay. like sci-fi fantasy shows. That are just ridiculous, like vampires oh, who go to space because the world <laughs> is uh, like no longer habitable, and then it's like Lord of the Flies on forever. the space station. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What are you gonna do, vampires? You don't die. So yeah. eventually, when nature turns on us because of the way we have just really fucked her over, we're gonna need to yeah. go to space. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do when you run out of humans you know, <gasps> to suck their blood? Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Right. But 
when I was young, though, I wanted to be a lot of things when I was young and nothing in medicine, like, didn't even Hmm. occur to me because we didn't go to the doctor. Uh, That's another episode. But (laughs) I very clearly, yeah, the doctor. I very clearly remember the day when I decided what my career would be. And I was 13 years old and my older sister took me, I think she bought us tickets to Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And we saw it in Chicago. Donny Osmond, it was an, his understudy did it, but his understudy was, I was 13 years old and I knew that guy was hot as hell back then. Mm. And I was like, well, I don't miss you, Donny. I don't know who this (laughs) other guy is, but hello. So I'm sitting there in my sundress that actually it had sunflowers on it. I remember what I wore and I watched that whole musical. I'd never seen a musical Mm -hmm. before, like in person. I'd never seen it. I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know what a playbill looked like. Like it was the whole experience, the red seats, everything. And I decided that I would be the narrator in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat for my job. Boom. She had short curly hair. So I'm already there. Cannot believe it. She had short curly red hair. I remember this. She wore a bustier top that was like, you know, that sweetheart neckline strapless bustier top it was black but sparkles like diamond encrusted and wide leg full length black pants that just like moved so nice like i was i was like i will be you when i grow up you are what i want oh my gosh so yeah that's what i was supposed to do with my life and now i'm here and i don't understand what happened Mm. Anyway, welcome to Breast Cancer is Boring, a podcast about breast cancer with Jocelyn and Lauren. Whether you have breast cancer or any other kind of cancer, or you're just a weirdo who's super (laughs) cancer curious, welcome. We hope you enjoy, because breast cancer is boring, but we and you Mm -hmm. are interesting. I love it. Awesome. Okay. Welcome. Before we begin. Yeah, welcome. Mm-hmm. Lead us Hi. in, Lauren. Hi. Welcome to Breast Cancer is Boring with my welcome. gorgeous co-host, Jocelyn the Amazing. And we have a... Yay. Oh, what, yeah. What, these glasses? Oh, they're nothing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and and I, we have a special yes. guest. Yes. But before we introduce him, I just want to see how everybody's feeling today. It is, just for clarity, since it takes me a full week to edit and put these out, it is the Saturday after the Tuesday, like the Tuesday, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about, and it's about one o'clock in the afternoon, which is a very different Saturday than I woke up with at 7 a.m. this morning, crying emoji, and now it's more of that, like, screaming emoji, but in a good way. Mm -hmm. Big smile emoji. Anyway, I just want to check in and see how everybody's doing, because I feel fantastic. (laughs) Me too, for Uh, sure. Yeah. How are you, Lauren? I'm great. I'm going to say I feel um, like like there's a weight off my shoulders, Mm. you know? Mm. There there was definitely some anxiety there, and I, I don't feel the anxiety anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jonathan? How you, uh, how you doing over there? I, I would concur exactly with what Lauren just said. There was an anxiety that just was rather pervasive for a few days and now it's just lifted and 
the birds are chirping. There, there were people <laughs> dancing outside our condo. It, it, it's been a great, great late morning for sure. Well, you know, it's like I always say, like a miracle, it'll be gone. You're going to wake up one day and like a miracle. It'll be anyway, gone. I don't know who that's more coffee talk than that is. Oh, I love coffee talk. <laughs> I do too. Oh, lady. Give you a topic. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a topic. Speak amongst I'm yourselves. Feeling a little verklempt. Anyway, our topic for today is research. And to help us with this topic, we've kind of brought in an MVP here, and it is the studious and stupendous Jonathan Heck, advanced practice provider and PhD. I can't say student. candidate student. That's correct. Yeah, you can't say that okay. yet. Okay. But you are like fully on track to get a PhD, so. Man. Yes, yes, at this wow. point. Wow, what an achievement. What, what an and achievement. And also very tired all the time. I bet. <laughs> I can only imagine. I mean, it must feel like women feel when they have twins or triplets. Oh, God, I don't. I bet you that's an equivalent. I wouldn't to... wish that on anybody. Right. Well, and that's, that's real tough. And you're tired yeah. all the time. You live tired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, Jonathan. You're just going to carry that workload around with you for about nine months, and it'll get heavier and heavier, <laughs> harder to move. You'll get more tired, more hungry. And then one day you're just going to squeeze that PhD out from between your legs. And sure, it'll change the way your body looks and there might be some tearing, but God damn it, you'll have it yeah. for the rest of your life. Right. And it'll be lovely. Similar. It'll be all worth it. I've Congratulations been to you and Glenn both. Thank you so much. <laughs> On your precious, precious little bundle of joy that's coming. Yeah. I'm so happy for you. PhD. Uh, and so terrified at the mm. same time. Um. Okay. However, before your PhD journey and every well, why don't you know what I can talk about you all day long, and that, and I'll tell one story, and then you're gonna just tell us who you are and what you're all about. But I remember when I started at the hospital that we may or may not both work at. I'm not gonna admit any of that, but I may remember a time when I was a brand new RN resident, baby nurse. I didn't know nothing, and I was in the uh, education center sitting there listening to your blood gas lecture at the same time that I believe your apartment was flooding. Oh, yes. Do you remember this day? And you were just like, so, you know, you're going to want to check that lactate one moment, please. I need to uh, text uh, uh, because my apartment's flooding. I'll be right back. (laughs) And then you were just back and we continued talking. (laughs) I'm sure it'd be fine. Yeah, anyway, back to metabolic acidosis, guys. <laughs> Check that bicarb. Right. Anyway, you, from that point on, and you already had, I feel like, a, a reputation because I had been there maybe a few weeks and I already knew who Jonathan Heck was and I already knew that you were the smartest guy in the hospital and that you, and then one time after that, I had been a year, a nurse for maybe like a year and you got into an elevator with me and I was like, oh my God, that's Jonathan Heck. And like we went up and you were like, hi. I was like, hi. And then you got off. And then I went to my unit and I told everybody that I was just on the elevator with Jonathan Heck. And now you're on my show and I'm super excited. Well, if I have a moment to fangirl out a little bit too, uh, I've been looking forward to this all week, even with all the everything else going on in the world. 
just mm-hmm. because this has kind of come full circle for me. I, I had a shout out in the people episode, a very brief shout out, but yes. even then, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be my opportunity to say, if you go back to episode, that, that episode, that that's me. That's the Jonathan. I'm so excited. Oh, I'm going to put that shout out in here. There you go. Oh my God. Only one shout out. God, I'm, I'm sleeping on you a little bit. Need to bring you into more episodes. You could honestly be in every episode. Just think about it. Anyway, okay, introduce us, introduce the world to the the person of Jonathan Heck. Uh, so, are, are, is this like an origin story kind of? Please do. <laughs> uh, oh, got it. Uh, so, I have been a nurse now for sixteen years. I uh, at the hospital that shall rename nameless, um, mm-hmm. and I finished. I, I'm at UT for the third time working on my PhD. Uh, so bachelor's degree, master's degree, and then uh, now on for the old piled high and deep. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I realized that research is a topic that's pretty boring to a lot of folks because it's it can be mystifying and confusing because there's, there's so many terms that are used that don't quite make sense. But it's something that I've always thought was interesting. And the more that I've that I've learned about it, the more that I realize it, it doesn't have to be confusing. It doesn't have to be mystifying if, if someone can explain it in such a way that makes it make sense. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be yeah. you today, I think. I hope so. That's the plan. I think that that's okay. a really awesome way okay. to put it. That's my plan, too. And honestly, again, not admitting that we do work together at the hospital, but if we did... You have been for years the person that I have gone to to when I want like facts, when I want science, when I want to be like, does this make sense? Am I reading this right? You're also the person I was texting a lot when I was going through my research class and my statistics class, actually. So um, when we come to t-tests and p-values and what the hell those, those mean. Things. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But you don't. You don't need a master's degree in nursing to read research, right? Oh, no. Is that... No, no. Okay. And no. Uh, I think that if the statistics are things that people who care about statistics and want to make sure you did it right, that's what they look at to make sure that whatever they were trying to analyze was done correctly. I think if you're a, if you're not trying to do that, if you were reading what they did, the method, the methods of the study, you you can skip over all those stats because that, mm. you know, that is just mathematics that doesn't really matter. Okay. It, it, if you're, if you're not into in wanting to get into the, how it was done and if it was done correctly, does that the make sense? And whatnot. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. I think so. So let's take it back like all the way. What, Essentially, what is research, and can it be trusted? Yes, but <laughs> I think that uh, so research is one of those great words that's both a, a noun and a verb. So mm. it's something that is that you can you pick up an article and that is research, but it's also an act of doing something, and it's essentially um, very structured and. Uh, it very systematic investigation. So if, if you have a question that you have, research is how you go about answering that question in a very methodical manner. And so that's essentially all it is. And so if you're going 
to Google something, if you do it very methodically, if you go to PubMed to search for something, you do it very methodically, or if you have a question that you want to analyze in a group of human beings, and you do it very methodically to try to say, this is how human beings react, that's, that's research. Okay. So uh, that is like one of the best explanations that I have ever heard. <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting here going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. That's right. Mm-hmm. I like that. I understand that now. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I think it's really important, though, to, to spell it out like that. And I that, mm-hmm. like, makes um, it a much less scary word. Because I think for the layman, when you say research, it seems so broad. And you're like, well, what does that really mean? And, you know, you're really trying to understand... Um, cause you see that word a lot, especially, um, mm-hmm. when it yeah. comes to, um, you know, even just making your own decisions about your own healthcare, trying to research something. And when you say, oh man, I have to research that it does seem immediately, at least for me, well, overwhelming, like, oh man, I have really got to find some good sources and be able to compare stuff and what a perfect explanation of what that is thank you i think a lot of people are intimidated by research and i think there are two reasons that like pop out for me and one of them is just it's non-specific like you said it's a noun it's a verb it's everything and a lot of people claim to do research or have the research and i think what the COVID-19 pandemic has brought into the national conversation, at least as I understand it, is this idea that there's some research out there that's not trustworthy and that there are a lot of entities doing research, even though it that's been around forever. I mean, right. if you have research studies out there that say definitively that to, like smoking does not cause lung cancer, clearly there's a market for these alternate but is that research? Like, So the, the challenge becomes, as we're growing up in school and we are learning, we go to our science classes and we learn about uh, like the laws of nature or the laws of physics, those, those rules or those laws apply 100% across the board. And so we mm. expect that science provides that level of absolute certainty in all aspects but unfortunately with human beings it's not like that and so we when we hear that studies have shown we expect that to be the absolute truth 100 percent of the time if it's anything related to healthcare or nursing or medicine that it's that is the absolute god's honest truth and unfortunately that's not not how human beings act that's not how what we what we identify that and science in in of human beings doesn't prove anything it shows similarities or differences in in whatever is being analyzed um, beyond the likelihood of it occurring by chance mm-hmm. and that's essentially what gets complicated to people because when, when we take let's say we take a group of a hundred women with breast cancer and we put 50 into this group and 50 into this group and we do some kind of intervention and we compare them, are they sufficiently different 
or sufficiently the same outside of what it would just be flipping a coin to see what would happen. And, and that's where it gets hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around because we want it to be absolute. We want it to be a law of nature. We want it to be a law of physics, yeah. but it's not like that. It's, it's, is this possibly going to happen outside of just what would just occur if I flipped a coin a hundred times? Yeah. And this is going to sound like a dumb question, but like, why? Why do we do research? Is this just like a hobby people have and then they found a way to make money doing it? Like podcasting? But like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm just kidding. We make no money here. <laughs> but like, why? Why do this research? Is it because sometimes it can feel really self-serving unless there's a purpose to it. But that's where research gets problematic, I find, is when people come into it with a purpose. Right. When they want to and, prove or disprove something, that is not pure research. That's not a, I don't think that lends to the scientific method. Yeah, and I think that if sometimes, uh, de depending on the question, people will see a research study and they might say, well, duh, you know, obviously. Uh, if, for example, if it was a, if you took a, a sleep promotion intervention with people and to see if they operated better at work. And then mm. turns out after they did this intervention, then they, they, you know, had, uh, better, um, outcomes at work or they were, you know, felt more productive at work or whatever measure we had associated with that. People might be like, well, duh, but we didn't know that originally. It, it makes sense, but maybe it didn't work or maybe it would work better if we did it a little bit differently. And so I think that why research is if you have a question that you really want to know the answer to and you could do it in such a way that you can show that yes this was effective or no it wasn't effective as we hoped it would have been that's what's the power of research and uh, people who discount that i think they don't fully appreciate sometimes the role that research has in every aspect of our lives outside of healthcare you know if we talk about public safety with airbags and seat belts mm -hmm. and everything else, all that isn't, you know, it was, it is still research. It's not clinical trials, but it's still doing intervention and seeing what the outcomes were and then showing that they were effective and then, you know, changing policy or practice to support it in the future. So I think that it, it impacts all of our lives, whether or not we think it's exciting or not. <laughs> That's a really good point. Airbags yeah. and mm -hmm. safety ratings mm -hmm. are a re direct result of research, and they've changed mm -hmm. over the years. Cars, right. we used to make cars that were like huge and totally solid, and they would get into a wreck and like mostly maintain their shape. And that is because the human body inside the car was absorbing all of the energy of whatever object it was running into. Then we learned that we need to design cars in such a way that they absorb the energy instead of us, right. which has resulted in cars looking super fucked up when they get into an accident. But we but then can we walk don't. Yeah, we yeah. don't. And it right. almost looks wrong. It almost looks like we're not doing a very good job designing cars, but it's actually to our benefit. Mm -hmm. And I think of this in terms of, again, the pandemic and masking. And how our understanding of universal masking from March is different from our understanding of universal masking now in November, because right. we've never studied this before in a real in a real time substantive way. 
I mean, the last time we had a global pandemic, I believe we were like pre-penicillin. Yeah. Or peri-penicillin, something like that. No, it was, you... it was very much pre. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> we need an episode called History, and then I can learn something. <laughs> but, you know, like, and, and I think that if you don't know that the point of science and research is to continually learn, it's not about being right. It's about finding out the facts. And sometimes the facts today will contradict something that was very much a fact five, ten, a hundred years ago. Right. And right. that is or, okay. Or even six months ago. Or I mean, even six and, months ago. And it all depends on the the way that the question that was asked and the the systematic investigation that was done, how you approached it. And so and and again I can understand how they can get real boring real quick because when you start getting into the nuance of the questions and how things are going to be studied and what the outcomes are going to be and what, how are we going to measure that, then people, you know, it gets, <laughs> but all that, all that ultimately translates into when you start looking at the, what the results were, how the study was done may directly mm -hmm. impact what the results are. Yeah. 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 Specific to the podcast we're doing right now, which is it about breast cancer? I forget. But mm -hmm. um, when when you hear the phrase breast cancer research, mm -hmm. where are you hoping? How are you hoping that individuals doing breast cancer research for themselves, just individual people who do not have a, a degree in any of this? Where are you hoping they're getting this information from and how are you hoping that they are doing research? I, that's a great question. I yeah. think that, that it's human nature to want to, when it, you receive any kind of information to want to know what, what that, what that means to me. Right. Um, and so I think that we tend to go to Dr. Google and start going down the rabbit hole of things that you find and some things that could be encouraging and some things that can be a little scary. Um, I think it's important to keep in mind that even though research can be a little boring and hard to digest sometimes, it's probably the best source of information on bigger groups of people. And so when you find a blog post from someone who may have may have a similar um, origin story to, to coin a phrase as, <laughs> as y'all have, or may have similar um, diagnosis um, or treatment regimen or whatever else, and they're describing what they're going through, that that is, that is their story and it is a form of evidence, but it is not research, it is, mm -hmm. it is their anecdote. Yeah. And so not to let that perspective weigh too heavily on you as being like, that's what's gonna exactly happen to you because it, it may not. And if you see it two or three times, again, the plural of anecdote is not data. So if mm. you find multiple people who are experiencing things, it, you should take it in, but take it with a grain of salt because it may not be exactly what you will experience. Um, and so I, I, I think it's good to, to have both sides, you know what I mean? To, to look at people's perspective because I think that's a human connection that you can kind of identify with, but not to think that that is reflective of the entire population of women with breast cancer because it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's a good reminder that even this 
podcast and podcasts like it, we say things in a very authoritative way. And we have <laughs> microphones and we are on Apple Podcasts. So you might be fooled into thinking like this is research. You can trust Lauren and I. And while we don't ever overtly lie, but your word was anecdote. This is anecdote. Right. When, when and it's I important. talk about what happened to me, it, yeah. It's important. Because it, it happened to you. And it, it, it bring, like you said, it can I can identify with that. But mm. you have to be cautious in thinking that just because this happened to you, and even in your previous episodes, you've talked about how, uh, like Jocelyn, I, I think it was you who said that everything tasted like metal, you know, mm -hmm. but Lauren didn't experience mm -hmm. that. And so it's very... Yeah you want to be cautious because yeah. if, if you hear that you're like oh my gosh that's exactly what's going to happen to me well maybe not yeah, mine it, was it's, dirt it, 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 yeah mm. i don't know which of those is worse because <laughs> that's that's awful it's awful um but it's anecdote yeah it's anecdote that's a word that we need to work into our collective language along with research is Anecdote. Anecdote. Um, Lauren, you had some questions. About I did. Research. So, um, and I'm going to just go towards breast cancer research. There's no end. How long does it take? And I think this kind of ties yeah. into what you were saying earlier is that there's always new findings and something about, um, you know, we have different tools now than what we've had before. So, um, you know, in just your experience, what would you say from doing research? What do you feel like it takes so long to do? With human beings, if we were to study particles, if we were physics researchers, then it would be a whole lot less complicated. But because mm. we're studying humans, there's a lot of, especially in this country, because of our not so great past in, in studying people who didn't necessarily consent to having it done, we have a very robust process by which if you, if I, as a researcher say, I have a question and I've written out my entire plan to, to answer this question and here's my hypothesis and here, and here's what my methodology is going to be. Um, I then need to get some, a body of people to approve me doing this, to make sure that I'm doing everything possible to protect the people that I'm going to be studying. And that's, that's beyond, it's not just if I'm going to be injecting you with some horrible chemotherapeutic that you need this protection, I even if I'm going to be uh, asking you to complete a survey, I have to show that I'm not coercing you to wanting to do it, that uh, I am protecting your, I your identity and your privacy if you were to do it. So there is a lot of uh, systems that are in place now that help protect the human subject who is going to be participating in a research study. So that takes a while to get a question asked the plan put together, all that written up, and to the people who say, yes, you can proceed with doing this. Uh, then you actually have to do the thing. So you have to say, hey, Jocelyn, do you want to be in this study? And no, don't be in the study. Hey, Lauren, do you want to be in this study? <laughs> oh, sure, maybe I'm in this study. Yeah, Lauren's and up you, for it. Yeah, and you recruit people and you do the things. And if it's if it's longitudinal, if I'm doing something that involves, all right, I'm going to put you in, into the study and I'm going to give you this drug and I'm going to be see you in a month, and then six months from now, and then six months from then, and six months from then. It takes forever. Right. Mm. And how do you know uh, when to, to stop? To get that piece done, I think that depending on the question you've got, you're, an you're asking. So okay. if, if, 
And if I'm wanting to get some kind of really nuanced answer, I'm going to need a much bigger group of people to analyze. Because if it's a very subtle difference to show that it wasn't just due to chance, I'm going to need 500 participants as opposed to if there's going to be a huge difference that I'm expecting to see. I may only need 50 participants or 100 participants. So then, you know, depending on what we're talking about here, it might have to be in multiple hospitals or multiple clinics, multiple states. All those states have to approve uh, or the individual institutions have to approve the, the trial. So it just takes so long to get that mm. piece done. And then analyzing it, writing it up. And that's why I think that when you read research studies sometimes and even get published in 2020, and they're talking about people who were enrolled from 2010 to 2015, you're like, good Lord, why did it take yeah. so long? And I think that's <laughs> the reason why. It's because you're trying to get all of these pieces to put together to get it done. Okay. That, that does. But, but the exciting thing is, is that there's beyond just you have breast cancer, you get chemotherapy and radiation tr treatment and a mastectomy and we cross our fingers. I think that cancer research has gotten to the point where a lot of the other healthcare research is going and trying to identify genomics and epigenetics and all these other com these uh, components that identify to say, Jocelyn, you have these markers that mean that your treatment should kind of go down this pathway versus Lauren, you have these markers, which means your treatment is going to be a little bit different. Mm. And for, you know, for a lot of conditions, I think we're identifying what those markers are, but we haven't actually begun to adjust treatment based on those markers. But cancer is one of those that has, which I think is really incredible that they're like on the forefront of genetic variants and determining what treatments should be should be adjusted based on wow. your genetics, which is That's yeah, so cool. But I think that that piece, yeah, will 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 cause us to continue to advance our understanding of and, and research into things because we, we will begin to know more and more and more based on who you are as a person what is the best treatment for you wow research sounds yeah. expensive <sighs> and that, yeah, who's that paying for this going to the she asked rhetorically so, because uh, she already knows <laughs> right let me go get yes. my wallet so it's it's problematic. Funny you should because, say that because you, you know, literally and, and are that, paying that for it. Well, yeah. So Susan G. Komen, all those times we put that money in for the race to the cure. Mm -hmm. Part of the money probably should be a little bit more of the money probably uh, goes to cancer research and to funding cancer trials. Mm -hmm. But it is it is big business, y'all. It is big. It's business. big business, and mm -hmm. if you follow the money. Most of the funding, most of the funding, and I'll just stick to breast cancer research, comes from the federal government, yeah. like in the hundreds of millions of dollars. We're not talking about the Susan G. contribution. We're not talking about Estee Lauder selling a, a moisturizer in a pink package because mm. you can just forget about that going anywhere, honestly. We're, we're talking about people in the federal government approving mm -hmm. bills to fund research and that is why we have Herceptin that is why we have Cadsila that is why we have these chemo other chemo agents and uh what I don't understand really is the fact that when I say the federal government pays for it of course I mean us you mm -hmm. know taxpayers pay for it 
And then pharmaceutical companies who take that money and do that research to develop a drug then charge us on the back end for the drug. And that, you know, we've talked about that at length before, but there's something, there's something really wrong with that. Yeah. Like at a fundamental, it almost, it feels, if I were to oversimplify it, I think, because it's not that simple and I get that, but it, it's profiteering. It's, yeah. it's taking money from people to develop something to enrich yourself and then selling it back to that person knowing that they, they have to have it to live. Mm-hmm. I don't have a choice. I had to get chemo. I mean, I did have right. a choice. I could die. Yeah, but most true. people are going uh, to take the chemo. <laughs> so yeah, it's just this weird thing yeah. that we do where we charge vulnerable people for life-saving medicine that they have already paid for. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I'm still naive enough to think that researchers and people who are conducting these studies aren't influenced by um, big pharma or big donations. And maybe that's because I'm also a nurse. And so I'm like, I'm probably going to get that much big funding anyway. Right. No, researchers researchers aren't seeing that money. Are you kidding me? (laughs) They're the worker bees. Like, you think a nurse gets money every time they hang that chemo? No. No, that's true. No, it's honey. Valid. And Lauren, to go back to something you mentioned, it's it's very difficult to look at. You know, if you're if you're the woman who is receiving chemotherapy, it's very difficult to look at something that tends to be rather dry and objective. You're like, this is me suffering getting this chemotherapy. How could it possibly be translating to something that's an improved outcome? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what also is a little bit challenging about research is because they you're supposed to write it in a way that is is devoid of all emotion but people who were living through it and and are your subjects that you were that you were analyzing to see if this is better have emotion you know they're human beings still Mm -hmm. i think that's part of the reason why research is also kind of hard to digest because it it takes that emotion piece out a lot of times it seems kind of cold yes it does which is where the not sexy thing comes from. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gotta make it sexy. Right. Uh, but I mean, there is there is a very good reason why it takes so long. And I think about I think about Herceptin versus high dose chemo. Mm. Same kind of trajectory. They started researching about high dose chemo, and early on they got very good results, and people were like, you need to give this to me now. Like as people, you know, in the breast cancer Mm -hmm. community started catching wind of these short term, very good results. They were all demanding. And I don't even think it was just in the breast cancer community. It was throughout the cancer community. So we started treating people in the early nineties with high dose chemo Mm -hmm. and then come to find out long term studies. These people were dying faster Mm -hmm. and in larger numbers, even though early on it looked so good. And then we repeated that in the mid to late 90s with Herceptin. And early on, everything looked so good. And there were literal protests. We talked about this. Women storming um, Genentech, I think is the name of the company, pounding on windows, trying to break, like demanding that they be treated with with this biologic. And they did release the drug early. And it turns out great. So it just, 
I think that's why sometimes people get confused about research or they get dubious about it and about how mm-hmm. much you can trust it. And um, I remember growing up in a very non-scientific family. Uh, <laughs> sorry, mom. But, you know, there were casual remarks made like, oh, science, one day butter's good for you and the next day butter's bad for you and now it's good for you again. Like, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm like, I don't know if you can really distill all of science down into butter, but... So I think it's these generalizations that are, are mm-hmm. a problem. Yeah. So... And it is confusing, and it it all depends on the question you're at, you're asking, the way that you're trying to answer that question, and and the groups that you study. And again, it's mm-hmm. it's never going to be proof. When people say we've proved something, I automatically think you don't know what you're talking about because we've not proven anything. We've we've shown this to likely be you know either similar or different or related or not um, better than what would be happening based on chance alone but it, there's no there's no proof of anything which is another mm-hmm. frustrating thing mm. I, as a human being i want a research article to be like mm-hmm. we solved it yep Here it it's is. done yep. proved we don't have to Here's look into this oh, anymore right but ever again every the end of every research article is like literally well, the the evidence appears to show uh, possibly that in uh, these very specific uh, circumstances, uh, this to be potentially continued. has an effect on what we believe could be, yeah. uh, in some instances, uh, but more research is needed. Yeah. Every well, research that, article I've ever read. But that's also self-serving because that just makes sure we always have a job. Yes. <laughs> that's all that's for. <laughs> More research is needed. Phew, thank God. This is like I'm every still, oncologist, and you're like, am I cured, Doc? Like, do I have cancer? Well, mm-hmm. not that we know of, uh, <laughs> but we should continue to, to look for cancer in your body, you know, like all the time. So don't ever forget, mm-hmm. you know, could come back anytime. Right. So, Gosh, that's know. so true. See you in six months. See You're you in three yeah. months. Mm-hmm. That is very, very true. Um. I don't think there's ever a point in cancer treatment, at least from what I remember, that they're like, okay, right now you're done, you're cancer free. Like there was never that like, that like, that's so funny because it really is relatable. There's no like stopping point where like, (laughs) okay, well, remember yesterday you had cancer and that was really bad, but today it's so different. No cancer, you're done. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Congratulations. That's so funny because, and I think that the general public thinks, and they ask, I know I get this question, oh, well, how long have you been cancer-free for? And I'm like, well, I'm not really sure. I don't really have a document that says. (laughs) Yes. September 18th was the day that all just Also, I don't know how long have you been cancer-free? You know, we could all be walking around. I had a tumor in me. I didn't know it. But uh, that that's kind of a mean thing I would to tell yeah, someone who's just trying to that. be nice to me. Yeah. Which also wouldn't put it past me to say that because certain okay. days it's on the tip of my tongue, man. It's, on the, it, it's right there. But it is a mm-hmm. thing, though. I think. It's a thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I want absolutes. I, I mean, look, we all want absolutes. Mm-hmm. I think we all want someone with uh, 
complete and utter confidence in what they're saying to give it to us in a way that's very this or that, a very binary system where things just are or they aren't. But the problem with that is, number one, that person is wrong. Number two, that oversimplifies a very complex world. And in that complexity is where individuality is. And there's something beautiful about anecdote. There's something beautiful about all of our stories and all of our experiences. And that beauty is not science. And it is not research. I think you said this, Jonathan. You said one time, and I'll never forget it. You were like, to every complex question, there is a simple answer. And it's wrong. <laughs> my it's like favorite. Uh, like, blew my mind. I was like, oh, shit. I do that. And I'm wrong. And I'm wrong. It's okay though. I mean, that's what we want. And I, I don't. Yeah. It, I hate to be the the person on the guest on the show to burst everyone's bubble, but oh, please do. We we live in a very complicated world, and mm-hmm. anytime you think that the answer is this, <laughs> it might be. It's not really what you yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, not it's really. a little bit more complex. To that end, I think we should maybe define some mm-hmm. concepts that you may come across Mm -hmm. in research, Uh, just like surface level stuff. So the first concept, correlation versus causation. Oh, this is one of my favorites. I know it. So so let's say you're watching the news and you hear um, the announcer say that studies have shown, or a study has shown that uh, people who sleep better tend to do better at work. And you think to yourself, oh, so sleeping better leads to better work performance. That's not what he said. Ooh. People who sleep better are have an association with doing better at work, but one did not necessarily lead to the other. So we have to be extremely cautious with this mm. because we as humans, in the same way we want 100% proof, black or white, we also want to know cause and effect. And this is seen in people who are big conspiracy theory buffs. They they see spurious correlations between this event, this event, this event, and they think they're all related. One led mm. to the others. And that's that's rarely, if ever, the case. And so when you hear um, women who had, with breast cancer, who had this thing done, also, ha- you know, uh, this better outcome doesn't necessarily mean that one led to the other. And there are ways that you can test for what's called causality, which is causation. And mm-hmm. it, there's there's nine criteria that we won't go into today because it's making it boring. Um, <laughs> but if if you're interested, you can Google Bradford Bradford Hill criteria for causality. And there's oh. a lovely paper from 1965 that he wrote uh, that outlines the nine, or depending on the newer criteria, I think includes ten, or the newer versions include ten criteria. If you're going to say this led to this causation, you have to make sure it meets those nine criteria. I love how that's still so Bradford Hill criteria for causality. I wow. absolutely Hill. love that it's still relevant. Nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, again, it and sounds so we like want they to, update it. So yeah, that's what makes it relevant. And, 
And it's from 1965, but we still learn about it in school. Bradford Hill, Criteria for Causality. I mean, just to remind you, in 1965, we used to think that spirits controlled your menstrual cycle. So, you know, tread lightly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, we hadn't quite landed on the moon yet, but we had not we understood causality. Wow. Sometimes in my head, like correlation and causation exist on like this spectrum. And on mm-hmm. like the one end of the spectrum is no relation whatsoever. And on this far end of the spectrum is absolutely, without a doubt, causes this thing. Mm-hmm. And so if you start on the no relation whatsoever and you move toward causes this thing, you go through first, you go through coincidence which is it just happened to happen at the same time and it might happen mm-hmm. to. And then you go get to correlation, which is a lot of the time it happens around mm-hmm. the same as this other thing happens. Then you move into causation. This led then, to this. Yeah. yeah, this actually does lead to this and then cause and effect. This directly mm-hmm. affects this other thing. So, but that is, that's like the number one. I feel like, isn't there a... Uh, Man, what's the thing in research where it's like the, the, not the fallacies, but the, um, do you know what I'm talking about? Well, what I learned about with, with this was uh, spurious. No, I don't. So I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure. That's no, what we no, learned. You, know was... it. you just got to go back in time, Jonathan, because you're way past it. So you've probably oh, built okay. on this knowledge. It's very foundational to research, but it's like the... Um, when you're wrong for a very specific oh, reason. A logical and fallacy? And there's like four uh, categories of when when your results are, you're like your t-test or your p-values or something are, are wrong. Oh, man. Oh, you talk about errors, like type one versus type two errors? Yes, the errors. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I have a master's degree. Um, <laughs> you know, the yes, the type one and type two errors. It yeah, it's so common that research that causation and correlation and actual like research is misinterpreted. It's so common like that these errors are known and labeled oh, wow. to help prevent us from making them because we know that our human mind wants to connect these dots that aren't necessarily connected. That's it, right? Very and so, and there there are ways that you can. There are ways that you can study. There are study designs that you can use to actually show, okay, we we did this, and this was the outcome, and we can show that this led to this. Mm-hmm. But this introduces a whole nother problem with research sometimes is that it can be perceived as overly artificial. So if we were if we wanted to draw oh. a causality, and we let's say we were take, going to take a hundred women with with breast cancer, but it was going to be a hundred women who had triple positive breast cancer who were in their late thirties who are 35 to 40. Like we, we narrowed down the window so much and we exposed them to an intervention and we measured the outcome and we randomized it and we did a crossover or we did a whole bunch of different complex, complex interve- um, study methods. And we said, yep, the outcome shows that the people who got the intervention did better than the people who didn't get the intervention. So therefore we can draw causation. But that's not real world, mm-hmm. you know? You have yeah. people who have triple positive breast cancer who are not 35 to 40. So does that variable yeah. play a role in the outcome? Does it, does it, out, does the, having um, triple negative, or if you have other uh, genetic variants, does that play a role in the outcome? So I think that research in an effort to try to draw causation to say, yes, this definitely led to this, 
sometimes it gets to be overly artificial that it can't be really replicated in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the real world and something we've touched on before is there is a real problem, especially in what I've seen of breast cancer research in that the population, the real world population isn't represented and Mm -hmm. upwards of 90 to, you know, nearly all of the participants are often white. And Mm -hmm. that is a real problem that research uh, needs to figure itself out. That's a a problem. And and that chicken and egg kind of discussions. (laughs) If you, there is a lot of mistrust that are, that mm-hmm. is in minority communities, partly because we created it, because we we studied them without their consent, you know, many, many yeah, decades ago. Yeah, just that ago. little and thing we did where we experimented Tuskegee. on them without, yeah, yeah. Oh, Henrietta Lacks, Ugh. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Also, so there's a lot of mistrust, and so yeah. therefore they don't, so in an effort to even try to recruit and ensure that they're represented in research, there's a lot of mistrust that occurs. Yeah. And I think I really think sometimes just not a genuine focus, like in a lot of things that we do, of being inclusive of every perspective and Mm -hmm. every lived experience, because that's when you get past that being anecdote and it starts becoming research. Right. And that's a great point, Jocelyn, because the lowest end of research is oftentimes thought to be qualitative and qualitative Mm -hmm. is the lived experience. It's saying, Jocelyn, I want you to talk about your experience with cancer. And Lauren, I want you to tell me about your experience. And we're going to see if there's themes that happen as a result of your, your lived experience. And, Mm -hmm. and that resonates with people just as much as quantitative research does. But for whatever reason, because of whoever made this decision, it's considered the lowest form because it's not a trial that involves 10,000 people that uses fancy math. Yeah. Even though it, it, if only it shouldn't it was. be. Mm-hmm. I would love for like, no one can see what I'm doing with my hands here, but <laughs> I'm interlacing them. Mm. Metaphor. Uh, no. Um, it would be nice to have both. Yeah. And honestly, just even qualitative research that was representative of the population right. that is being served by the outcome oh, of the research. And, and I've, I've learned this semester in particular that uh, there is there's methods that like if if you wanted to see what a whole bunch of research studies have done, have shown, oftentimes you go to what's called a review. of. So there might be a systematic review or a meta-analysis which is like a whole bunch of research studies that are combined together to show what the, what all those studies have shown as outcomes. Mm-hmm. There's a different kind of review called an integrative review, which includes qualitative studies, like what was your lived experience, as well as quantitative studies. Because that's wow, kind of the best yeah. of both worlds, right? We can say, Jocelyn and Lauren, what were your experiences? How did this work? But then we can also look at qu- studies where we've measured numbers and, and look to see how the two of them kind of combine. So mm-hmm. I think that we're working towards the, the, the meshing, the, the, the best of both worlds. It's just taken a while to, to get us there and to appreciate the role that qualitative research has. That, yeah. That's cool. Throughout medicine, mm-hmm. trying to mm-hmm. appreciate the human lived experience is sometimes a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, Peer reviewed. When we say that people need to be reading peer-reviewed articles, what yeah. do we mean by that? I'm learning that peer review is just a torture technique used for PhD students. Uh, no, it's um, 
in your lived experience is a little different right now yeah uh so if i were to if i think that i'm an expert in blah 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 and i write Mm -hmm. i do a research study and i write it up and i submit it there are other experts that are gonna that don't generally get paid but they are a reviewer for whatever type of journal i'm submitting to and so they get sent my manuscript my write-up and they say all right, Jonathan, I really like blah, blah, blah. This was good, but you really should consider this. And this was studied beforehand and there's new updates on this. And so you just have people who are experts in the field who are providing guidance to make sure that what you have written mm. is is legit and substantial before it goes out to the world for everyone to read. If you were to go to Dr. Google and start, start doing some searches and you found something, you know, the Car- uh, uh, Caribbean Journal of you know Cancer Medicine, you can find probably that page and you can go and Google or go to the Wikipedia page and determine if something's peer reviewed. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's again gospel because um, yeah. I meant to look this up again, the, the Wakefield article that showed the link between vaccine or the supposed link between vaccines and autism oh, was yeah. published in The Lancet, which is a very, very high, highly reputable mm-hmm. peer reviewed journal that's been around for a long, long time. So peer review doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. It just means that it's better than non-peer reviewed. And that's why research is not final. Mm-hmm. Right. And Which is great, but also yeah. annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so annoying. But you can have an article like that published in The Lancet that shows, I think, what is what I understand to be a lot of correlation. Mm-hmm. In and a very, not- very small sample. A very, right. In a very, very right. small sample, which the smaller the sample, you know, the, the, the greater the number, the greater the sample, the closer the mean. That's just math. And that's in research, too. The larger the number, the closer you are to accuracy on causation. But don't, I think it, it is very dangerous to take one individual research article and hang mm-hmm. your hat on that and not look around because it's not that the evidence exists independent of any evidence to the contrary it but is that evidence to the contrary so small Mm -hmm. that more than likely it is not accurate and and this is accurate like Mm -hmm. i said there's there i mean it is widely understood that smoking cigarettes leads to lung cancer we we know that those who get lung cancer a lot Mm -hmm. of the time it, it can cause that Although there are there is research out there that says the contrary. Right. And the bulk of that research is funded by tobacco companies. Right. So and and if you were to, you know, funding is a, a big source of bias. You have to be very mindful of who's funding yes. a study because it definitely could sway how how the study is done and how the the statistics are run and analyzed. But th- at the same time, you know, Depending on the group of people that I that I analyze, I, I could get a hundred smokers, and even though I was trying, I was trying to determine if if smoking led to lung cancer, maybe just maybe, and I think we're getting to this question about significance p values. Maybe mm-hmm. just maybe, I have a situation where we don't find a, a significant correlation between smoking and lung cancer. But the deal is, if that one study shows that there isn't one but there's a hundred others that shows there is Mm -hmm. we we can't simply 
say, well, this one doesn't, yeah. you know, well, if a hundred doctors have told you you have cancer, but one says that you don't, which one do you yeah. want to land on? You know, who, who <laughs> yeah, do you want to believe? Just, that's exactly right. You know, I think it, that's a, it's just like yeah. getting a second opinion or third opinion, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. or a meta analysis mm-hmm. of opinions. Absolutely. Right? And so you brought up what we were kind of going to touch on, and that is P values, T tests. Mm-hmm. Essentially, I just want to have you speak to the ways in which researchers ensure that their results are tested for validity, basically. And that's a big portion of the peer review process. And so if if you write an article as a researcher and you send it to a journal to get published, um, it'll go to peer reviewer people and they will say, if, if we want to get really epically nerdy, they might say, you did this kind of t-test, but there was a relationship between your groups, and so you should do a different kind of t-test. Like, they get to that level of nuance to make sure that what you're trying to produce and put out there to the world is, is accurate. If you're, if you're a consumer of research, if you're wanting to read research articles, I think this is the biggest portion of, that turns people off because they get to the results section and they're like, I have no idea what any of this means. Yeah. There are lots of numbers and p-values and students t-tests and and ANOVAs and I don't even know what that means. Why are all these abbreviations there? And it, it's it's not. I think that that portion is something that can easily be skipped. And from if you're a consumer of research and wanting mm-hmm. to just see what it showed and jump straight to the conclusion, or the discussion or conclusion, whatever is written to see. Because they'll summarize it. The researcher will say, this means more. And then you can, okay, I get it. Without having to get so wrapped up in what, you know, the the analysis of covariance shows, which doesn't matter. I don't think if you're the, if you're not the reviewer or if you're not trying to replicate it, I don't think it matters. Yeah. I might get a nasty gram from one of my professors saying that, why do you say my statistics don't matter? But But consumers of research don't need to necessarily know that. It's really sweet that you think any of your professors listen to our podcast. <laughs> it's it's also really sweet that you think I'm not going to be sending this to everyone that I know to make sure yes! they listen to it. I think that's awesome that you think that put it on blast. Oh man, please, yes, please. do. I keep saying we're trying to get famous here. It's so hard. Okay, Jonathan mm-hmm. Heck, excellent human person, advanced practice provider, PhD, future mm-hmm. recipient. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I had a wonderful time. Me three. Me too. That's our show. Take us out, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jonathan. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Jocelyn. My dog I had a great time. Hiccups. I appreciate it. Your dog always <laughs> has <laughs> Look at this face. What a great clothing line. My dog has Look hiccups. at this face. Oh. You must have died before <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> See, I'm such a good princess veterinarian. Princess veterinarian. Mm-hmm.